We bout that inner fulfillment, sipping the cab, never spilling. Pinot Merlot, and any way the grape can give us that feeling. Business and marketing, sales revealing all of that realness. Health is wealth, are you with me? We talking wellness and chilling. Spilling anything but a drop. It's important to tell, it's not just about cash, but it's about doing more for yourself. So pour a glass, don't have to share with anyone else. Leave your problems on the shelf. You tuning in to wine and wealth. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Wine and Wealth. And I am so pumped for today because I have my very first guest on the podcast. And I waited a couple to make sure that the first person I got was someone that you would love as much as I do. And I've been following this person for a while in their speaking career. And so I'm really charged up about the conversation we're about to have. My guest today is Alan Stein Jr., He teaches proven strategies to improve organizational performance, create effective leadership, increase team cohesion and collaboration, and develop winning mindsets, rituals, and routines. As a successful business owner and veteran basketball performance coach, he spent 15 years working with the highest performing athletes on the planet. That includes NBA superstars such as Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Kobe Bryant, which we will talk about in this podcast. In his corporate keynote programs and workshops, Alan reveals how to utilize those same approaches in businesses that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. He delivers high practical lessons that can be implemented immediately. His clients include American Express, Pepsi, Sabra, Starbucks, Reed's Jewelers, FDA, Omnistel, and numerous college athletic programs. The strategies from Alan's book, Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, which I just read and is very good, are implemented by corporate teams and sports teams around the country. His inspirational words are featured on a 12-foot mural outside the Penn State Football Training Center so that players run past it on the way to practice every day. Welcome, my friend, Alan Stein, Jr., Oh, man, it's awesome to be here. It's great to reconnect with you, man. We're going to have a fun conversation. So I want to kick this off with, as I was in your book, and um, I I had it on Audible, and I'm listening to it, and you mentioned how you never let your kids beat you in anything. And I laughed out loud because (laughs) that's how I was raised with my father. But then I saw a clip. It's like there's a a clip on the basketball court where it looks like a 10-year-old kid is shooting up a jump shot and it gets swatted out of the air. Is that you? <laughs> that is me, and that is my ten-year-old son Jack, uh, <laughs> who was on was on the business end of that uh, block shot, which was great. But he was he was a good sport about it. And uh, no, that you know that's probably one of the key pillars of my parenting philosophy. Uh, I don't believe in letting my children win. Now, uh, before anyone goes and calls child services, uh, let me make a disclaimer. You know. Um, I want to make sure that everything my kids get in this world is something that they earn. Now, certainly as their father, you know, my number one job is to to protect them from physical harm and provide them with clothes and shelter and food and all that stuff. Uh, But I want them to learn how important it is to earn success. So when it comes to things that involve strength or skill or strategy, I mean, it's going to be very rare that someone eight to 10 years old is going to be able to beat someone that's 44 years old, you know, especially since I still take really good care of myself when I'm physically fit. So I don't let my kids beat me in a game of one-on-one or a game of Monopoly or anything like that. Um, But what I do is I'll, I'll handicap the rules or I'll handicap 
the situation to give them a better chance. So a perfect example would be if, if I want to race my son Luke in the parking lot and say first one to the car wins, I might give him a 15-yard head start. Uh, I'm still going to run as fast as I can. I'm still going to try to beat him. But if I handicap it appropriately, there's a good chance he'll win. And there's a difference between your kids winning and you letting them win. Um, and then we also do some other games that just involve chance and things like that, where, you know, just a roll of the dice, I don't have any more advantage than they do. But um, funny enough, using that philosophy, you know, my twin sons are 10 and my daughter's eight. And, you know, just the other day we were playing Connect Four and uh, they beat me in one of the games at Connect Four. Now, I probably won 52 games in a row before they won but you should have seen the joy on their face when they finally got that win. Uh, it meant the world to them. So to me, that's the other thing is uh, things that are earned, uh, usually you have a much greater appreciation and respect for. Did someone teach you that? Did you get that from somewhere? You know, what's interesting, my, my parents have a slightly different parenting philosophy. And, and this is one I've actually had to have a, a chat with them about, you know, and, and I think some things change when you go from being a parent to a grandparent. Now I've never experienced being a grandparent, so I don't know that. Um, but I remember as a child, uh, my dad would never let me win. But now that he's a grandparent, I think he's gotten a little bit softer because occasionally he'll let the kids beat him and, and he'll see me beat one of my sons 10 times in a row in a game. And then he'll step in and lose and, and throw the game so that he feels better. And I'm like, dad, don't do that. Like you're undermining everything that I believe in here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay for kids to lose. You know, I, I've always been a big believer that we learn through winning and we learn through losing. And I want to make sure that my kids understand both perspectives but more importantly, that they're good sports, they're graceful, and they're gracious, whether they win or they lose. Mm. You know, when, when they win, uh, I don't want them showboating or gloating. It's okay to be happy, and it's okay to smile and feel good, um, but I want them to be a good sport when they win. And then when they lose, of course, uh, I want them to be very respectful. I don't want to see any pouting, and I definitely don't want to see any complaining or making excuses. Uh, so for me, it's really important that I model that for my children. Uh, when I do beat them, you know, that was what was supposed to happen and it's okay. And then when they do beat me, I make sure that I'm very gracious in congratulating them and telling them that, you know, their hard work and their great attitude paid off. You said something, and I don't even know if you caught it, but you said your dad lets him win so he can feel better. I thought that was interesting because that's really what it is. You, so it's kind of self-serving yep. letting that happen. Do you think that, you know, as a parent now, you, and I'm my kid's two and a half, so I'm kind of preparing for sports and athletics. Uh, but I'm I'm preparing for the participation trophy conversation, which I am very much against. And actually, I was a I was a product of that generation as a 38 year old Gen Xer kind of cusp of ex millennial. Uh, do you struggle with those conversations? I know there was a video of an NFL player who made the kid like throw away the trophy, and he cried, and it was like. Is a whole thing. So, like, do you ever find yourself in the mix? Do parents look at you like you're crazy? How's that working out? You know, generally speaking, yeah, the entire concept of everyone gets a trophy goes against everything that I believe in. Um, uh, I don't think I'm at a point where I would actually break my kid's trophy in front of them. Um, but, no, I want them to understand, once again, that there, there needs to be a connection between 
you pursuing something that you want to be good in and, and putting in the, the work and the, the repetition during the unseen hours so that you can perform well when it's time. And then when you do all of that, it still doesn't guarantee that you'll perform well. Like there's nothing wrong with letting kids understand that there are winners and there are losers in a lot of different activities. Um, but I also teach my children um, to depersonalize that. Just because you lose a game does not mean you are a loser. It just means in that specific contest or game, you came up a little bit short. And is there something that you can learn from that? Is there something that you can go back to the drawing board and prepare differently the next time to get a different outcome? Um, but yeah, I actually think um, the, the concept and premise behind everyone gets a trophy was noble when it first started. Uh, I think the mindset was it would actually raise collective self-esteem if everyone felt like they were a winner. Uh, but what they found out was it did the exact opposite. Uh, it gave you a false sense of self um, because you knew in your heart that you didn't earn whatever it is that you got. And, and that ends up causing uh, more problems than I think that it causes good. So uh, I have no problem uh, with, with scores being kept during my children's youth sports and activities. Um, I also believe, though, that there is a difference between, um, as, a, as a youth coach, there's a difference between emphasizing winning and emphasizing being competitive. Um, I think at young ages, it, doesn't, it does us a disservice if we are focused too much on outcomes. If the goal of a youth coach is simply to win games, I actually think that's a red flag and that's a problem uh, because ultimately what that coach will do will only play to the strengths of the team. They'll only play the better players. They'll only put the better players in positions to be successful. And that's not how you improve and develop. So I actually believe at younger ages, more should be done to focus on fun, more should be done to focus on development and learning skills and being a great teammate. And it's fine to keep score, just don't worry so much about the winning and losing. But teaching kids that winning and losing is important and teaching kids that that showing up as your best self and being competitive is also very, very important. But those things are not the same thing. So when I hear a youth coach bragging that, hey, our team went 15-0 and and won the championship, I'm like, you coach a group of eight-year-olds. Like, that, that does nothing to impress me. Uh, that, that doesn't really show much about your coaching acumen either. Uh, what's most important is saying, at the beginning of our season, our kids could only do this. And at the end of the season, they could do this, this, and this. And they had a great time. And they, they had great experiences and made better friends. They improved their skills. They learned some life lessons. I think that's what's most important at the youngest of ages. And then, of course, as you get older, um, you know, high school and college and certainly professional, then winning and losing is part of the business. So let's talk about that because I know your history and I'd like for you to expand a little bit on your, your background. Uh, you worked with, we'll call them adolescents, young teenagers. So give us a background and then maybe touch on, has it changed? Cause you work with some high profile people, which I'd like for you to share who those were versus what you're seeing now. So just touch on that a little bit. So give us your background. Sure. So I spent, uh, I'm a former college basketball player. So I was a pretty good public school, high school player here in the DC area uh, and then played at Elon down in North Carolina. And in, when I was at Elon, I started to develop an equal love for strength and conditioning and fitness and performance training. Uh, so when I graduated Elon in 1999, 
I decided the best route for me was to take my original love of basketball and combine that with my new love of strength and conditioning. And I became a basketball performance coach. And I did that for almost 20 years. And I intentionally uh, stayed focused on the youth and high school level. Uh, I really felt in my heart that was the age that I could make the biggest impact on, uh, not just with their athleticism and not just on the court, but I felt I could also be a role model off the court because they're at such an impressionable age, you know, middle school and high school. So that's where I spent most of my time. And what makes my journey rather unique is uh, the two high schools I had an opportunity to work with uh, were two internationally renowned basketball programs. Uh, the first was Montrose Christian, uh, which is where Kevin Durant graduated from. And the other was DeMatha Catholic High School, uh, which is where Victor Oladipo graduated from. And, and combined in my 13 years at those two schools, uh, we have over a dozen players still currently playing in the NBA. So these were really, really elite level kids. And one of the things that made it my, my, my journey so interesting is I got to work with guys like Kevin Durant and Markel Fultz and Quinn Cook and, and, and Victor Oladipo when they were 14 and 15 years old. So before they made it to, to be household names as NBA superstars, I got a chance to see the before picture of what that would take. Uh, and then because I was able to work at those two schools, I was able to have some opportunities with Nike and with Jordan Brand and USA Basketball. And I was able to observe and work alongside guys like LeBron and Kobe Bryant, and Steph Curry, and Kyrie Irving, and Anthony Davis. So I was able to see guys after they had already become household names and bona fide NBA superstars. So I've been able to see the before and the after picture of what it takes to be elite, not just in basketball, but in anything. And that's really the work that I do now is I, I take the principles and disciplines and mindsets of high performance from sport, and I translate those to business and to sales. Um, so that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful that I had an opportunity, uh, to be able to see both sides of what it takes to be elite. Yeah. And, uh, I want to make sure we, we circle back to that because I want to ask, why do you think sports and business collide so well? Like we, we see, I remember seeing Lou Holtz. I mean, we're, we're members of the National Speakers Association. I saw Lou Holtz at an NSA conference and he captivated a room full of essentially business people and watching who you speak to and the message, how well it resonates, especially on the leadership side. What is it about sports in particular that works so well? Where these guys or girls have careers after their careers in this space? Well, I mean, the transfer is remarkable. It's amazing that how much utility some of these basic principles and fundamentals have. Uh, in fact, we could probably have a much shorter conversation if we discuss the differences between sports and business. That's how much they are alike. Um, and, and the traits that it takes to be successful in basketball. Uh, you need self-awareness. Uh, you need a competitive drive. You need to appreciate the basics and the fundamentals. You have to have a passion for your craft. You have to understand that repetition is not punishment. You have to respect the process. You list all of those things. Every single thing I just mentioned is equally applicable to someone in business, uh, whether they're an executive or a manager or whether they're in sales or whether they're in HR, it's all the same stuff. Um, even a step further, you know, one of the, the best skill sets that a, a coach can have is the ability to ask insightful questions. You know, the best coaches in the world actually do less directing and do more asking than most people think. 
uh, because they want to make sure that they're customizing their coaching for that specific player, or that specific team. Well, it's the same thing. Uh, an executive or a sales professional is much better off asking questions of those that follow them or of one of their prospects than they are telling them. And um, that, again, that's just another example of, of traits that apply in either direction. Yeah, you, um, you've mentioned this a couple of times, like repetition. I like what you just said, repetition is not punishment. And uh, I think they've actually made it a form of punishment, right? Right, that I will not yell at the teacher 50 times in a row on a piece of paper. So they've actually used it as punishment in the past. But um, you, you've mentioned basics, repetition a couple times. Where do you see I – th I think that's a, a message that resonates with a lot of young kids. They probably hear it for their first coach. But then there's a gap. How does that happen? How do people get away from the basics and the repetition to where they feel like it's punishment? Well, they, they fall victim to the temptation that all of us feel at some point, which is to chase what's new, chase what's sexy, <laughs> chase what's shiny, you know, that, you know, why, why, if I'm a professional player, would I continue to do the same footwork drills that I learned when I was in high school? I have to have graduated past that. Uh, and in many times you haven't, you know, I'm a big believer that, that anyone that's considered an expert, uh, you know, uh, we throw the word genius around a lot. Someone that is a really high performer doesn't necessarily mean they know a lot more or can do a lot more than everyone else. It just means they have mastered the basics better than anybody else. And, and that's what's so important. Now, that doesn't mean that as, a, as an elite performer in sports or business that you only do the basics. It simply means that you never leave them, that those will always be the foundation to which the rest of the house is built and you never get away from them. Um, one of the best examples I can use um, is uh, in the NFL. Uh, inevitably, a team, this happens every single season, um, a team will lose two or three games in a row. And at the post-game press conference, the head coach will come on and say, you know what, tomorrow at practice, we are going to get back to the basics. Uh, and of course, in football, they're talking about blocking and tackling, throwing and catching. And, and I always chuckle when they say that, uh, not because I think I'm smarter or a better leader than an NFL coach. Those guys are geniuses at what they do. But I laugh because uh, the answer is staring them right in the face. If they think the key to being successful is going back to the basics, then that leads the obvious question, why did you ever leave them in the first place? If you really think you're going to solve all of your problems by practicing blocking and tackling and throwing and catching, then why would you ever not have that part of your practice plan? And when you uncover, you know, a, a, a program or an organization like the Patriots and Bill mm -hmm. Belichick, I mean, you can hate the guy's guts all you want if you're not a Patriots fan, but Which he believes in the basics. He believes in the fundamentals. There will never, ever be a New England Patriots practice that does not involve the fundamentals. You can say the same thing for Nick Saban at Alabama, for Coach K at Duke, you know, uh, Greg Popovich with the San Antonio Spurs. You can go down the list of some of the most successful coaches. And if you ever go watch their practice for a portion of it, it would take you back to your high school days because you would see some very basic fundamentals being done over and over. And it's no accident <clears throat> that those organizations have had the most sustainable success for the longest periods of time. So for me, anytime that I don't think I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, anytime that I don't think I'm performing at a level that I'm capable of, I always go back and make sure that I'm not glossing over the basics or skipping over them. 
Right. So that's a self-awareness issue. <laughs> How do you, it's, it's all, it, we, we call it EQ, right? In, yeah. in the business world, I do EQ assessments. So it's, it's EQ. It comes with, you know, I could do an assessment, but it also comes at a perfect time of about your age. So yeah. you've grown into it. How long do you think you've been good at your own self-awareness and, and how would you coach somebody up who's maybe younger than you, maybe a young NBA player or football player that we know doesn't have it, especially if you went into the NBA at 19 years old? Yeah. Well, you know, and I think my journey may not be that much different from everyone else. You know, I think as a teenager and even in my early 20s, I was pretty hardheaded. Uh, I already knew everything um, and, and wasn't near as open or as coachable as I'd like to believe I am now. And of course, at 44, with some maturity and some life experience under my belt, it's almost comical when I look back at the teenage or 20-something Alan and realize not only how much I didn't know then, but have the humility to acknowledge how much I still don't know now and still need to learn and grow. Uh, and from a self-awareness standpoint, what might be a little bit different uh, from my journey than everyone else's, um, it really kind of was a very pivotal and epiphanal moment in my life uh, that I started to gain it. Um, I went through a very, thankfully, a very amicable divorce uh, about six years ago. And part of that divorce uh, included going in for some couples therapy. And it was during that process, which then extended into two years of weekly individual counseling and therapy, that I really started to heighten my self-awareness. Um, I finally kind of got out of my shell and allowed this medical professional uh, kind of into my world and allowed her to help me see some of my blind spots. I gave her full permission to hold me accountable and call me out. And she did a brilliant job of that. Uh, it was painful at the time. I didn't want to listen to it at the time, uh, but for some reason I did. And, you know, you could really take my life at 44 years old and you've got the, the pre-counseling, which was around 38 years of my life, and you've got the post-counseling. And, and there's certainly a, a red thread between the two. Uh, I would like to believe that both of those guys had a big heart. You know, both of those guys were respectful and kind and of high character and were moral, you know, so I didn't change who I was, uh, but I can tell you for sure that I, I severely lacked self-awareness uh, during those first 37, 38 years. And while I certainly haven't arrived at present, I'm more self-aware now than I've ever been. And that's my goal. I don't think self-awareness is something that you fully arrive at. I don't believe it's a, a finish line. I think it's a constant journey. And my goal is with every passing day and week and month and year that I become more and more self-aware. Uh, and I do believe self-awareness is not only the key and the foundation of high performance and high achievement, but I actually think it's the key to happiness and fulfillment, which is most likely what all of us uh, covet the most. Mm. If, uh, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but do you remember what exactly... Was there a specific moment or something that she did or even a, 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 a technique she used or something that helped you through that process? Do you remember something that, that hit you? There? Oh, most certainly. Well, from a technique standpoint, I do recall that the vast majority of what she did was simply ask questions. Um, she, she never told me what to do. She never told me how to feel or how to respond she simply asked question after question so that I'd be fully accountable to whatever my response was, to whatever my feeling was. And, and she did a brilliant job of that. And, you know, there, there were a few times where she did an expert job of kind of 
getting me to question current beliefs that I had. You know, Alan, why do you feel this way about something? And many times I didn't have a great answer for that. You know, well, I just learned that as a kid or, or somebody had told me that. And I really didn't do the investigative work that I should have done to form my beliefs and my convictions. You know, that's a, another thing that I believe has helped me as a parent now is I work really hard not to teach my children what to think. I try and teach them how to think that I don't try to download my beliefs and my opinions on my children. I want them to be free thinkers. Now, I'm always very open. If they ask me my opinion on something, I'll always share it, but I make sure that they understand the difference between facts and opinions. You know, mm -hmm. facts are indisputable. You know, if it's 75 degrees out right now, it's 75 degrees. We can't argue that. Um, but we can have different opinions on a lot of different things. So I, I, I'm open with my children, but I want them to learn how to think. And, and I have no problem, especially as they get older, if they have a view, a, opposing viewpoints from mine. You know, I mean, we could go down a list right now of things in our country that are incredibly divisive. You know, whether you're talking, you know, are you left or right or liberal or conservative? You know, um, you've got obviously the, the current social unrest and racial inequalities. Mm -hmm. You can talk about, you know, sexual orientation or uh, LBGTQ rights. You can talk about gun control. You can talk about abortion. I mean, there's a lot of things that are incredibly divisive. And I want to teach my children, one, a thought process on how you can decide what it is that you believe but equally important, how can you have a civil and respectful discussion with someone that views things differently than you do? And I actually think that's one of the biggest problems we have in society right now is lack of civil discourse. That, that two people that adamantly oppose each other in a viewpoint can't seem to have a respectful conversation. And I don't think that's very good. <clears throat> so uh, I know that was a heck of a tangent, but if I go no, back, she, she would constantly get me to question things that I believe. And she kept getting me to go back to my childhood, going back to the way I was raised. And at the time, I didn't quite understand it. I mean, I remember I said to her in one of the first sessions, look, lady, I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but I don't need you to ask me about my childhood. My marriage is what my problem is. Can we talk about my marriage? And she said, look, the only way we can get to fixing your marriage is if we go all the way back to the beginning and figure out why you have some of the behavior issues you have some of the, the mindsets that you have. And that was when I put my full trust in her and I let her be my tour guide. And we would slowly, every session, another puzzle piece would get put in place. And by the end of it, I could kind of see the full mosaic. And I had wow. full understanding of my responsibility and what I brought to the table, um, in this case, for a, a marriage that wasn't quite functioning. Mm. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's great. It's so cool because we started talking about the basics, right? And, and certain fundamentals. And if, if you really think about it, we've had these tools that get back to shifting certain paradigms that we were raised with. I mean, it's, it's in the seven habits of highly effective people. And, and these are, you know, these books are now going to be ancient history before too long. It might even be now, but it's interesting that the basics have been there and we get so far away. I mean, I read that book, in college and I just oh, yeah. revisited it probably a year ago. And I'm like, shit, man, I should have, I totally threw all that stuff out the window once I got into the professional world. Absolutely. And, and so it's amazing to hear or how, and so that's interesting. You have a coach. So she's really a coach. Absolutely. Oh, so how, 
you know, my brother coaches um, at a collegiate level. He coaches women's soccer at a collegiate level, uh, D1 school. Nice. And you could probably just Google my last name. So I'll just say he coaches at Maryland. And, um, but he's been coaching the day he got out of college. He literally got his first coaching job after college nice. and has been in the game ever since. And he's still trying to be at the top of what it takes to be a good coach in order to be a good coach. But he has told me that the dynamic of the kids coming through the door is certainly changing. Um, do you see that as a, uh, how do you put this nicely? Just a symptom of social media, what's going on in the world. I mean, we both have kids, so we're a little high tuned to this and, and yeah. you being in athletics, I'm sure you're paying attention, but uh, why do you think that might be the case just out of curiosity? Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the everybody gets a trophy mentality. Yeah. Um, and what I think we need to do though is uh, if we're going to be honest and reflect, it, it's the adults are the ones that have caused the problem. The like, coach. Yeah. Well, well, just in general, like who, if we think kids are entitled because they came from an everyone gets a trophy uh, mentality, well, who were the ones that came up with that? The adults were the ones that came up with that. You know, that's, that's part of the problem. So I don't think kids have changed as much as the way adults parent and coach children. And certainly the environment's changed. I mean, you know, when, when I was 10 years old, which are what my twin sons are now, you know, I had Atari. Uh, that, was, that was the closest I could get to playing something. And, and these kids have iPads and can be digitally connected 24 hours a day to anything mm -hmm. that they want. Um, and, and I have to have the empathy and acknowledge that when I was 10, if I had an iPad, I would want to be on it all of the time as well. So it's one of these things where I, I think as a coach and as a parent, um, empathy is one of the most important tools that we have. So in, instead of saying kids are more entitled today, we all need to take a step back and go, well, who entitled them? Who gave them this sense of entitlement that lets every kid think they're special and every kid thinks they're great at everything? We as adults did that. So we can't blame kids for having that. Uh, having that mindset. We're the ones that implanted it. So that's why I think it's, it's vital as adults that, that we become part of the remedy, that we don't just bag on young people and we don't just constantly say millennials or the, the generation after that, you know, they're soft and they're right. weak. You know, honestly, that's happened every generation that we've seen. Um, my parents thought their generation was, was harder and tougher than mine. And I think I'm harder and tougher than my children. And inevitably they're gonna grow up and think the same thing about their kids. Uh, that's just the, the, the way that the world unfolds. But I really think it's up to us as adults to be able to set those parameters. And uh, I really think it's a cop-out when someone says, well, I can't coach kids because they've changed. You know, really the, the human brain hasn't changed a whole lot in the last thousand years. I mean, let's be honest. It's, you know, there's not been a whole lot evolutionary that's changed, you know, over the last little bit. But the way that we handle things and the way that we coach and the way that we treat others uh, has changed. And mm -hmm. you know, I know for a fact, there were a handful of, of coaching mantras that I learned very early in my career. So that's, you know, 20 plus years ago, that absolutely still hold true today. So th those things haven't changed. And those are things like uh, the mindset that it's not about me. It's about you. That is coaching 101. It is not about me. It's about you. I also learned as a young coach, you have to connect first, and then coach second. You have to make a, an established trust and respect and build a, a, a fortified relationship 
before you try telling a kid what to do or how to do it. You know, before you yell and scream and hold them accountable, you have to create a connection with them first. Uh, and I absolutely know that when it comes to behavior, and this is the foundation of my parenting philosophy, you either accept it or you correct it. There is nothing in between. There is no gray area. Every single thing my children say or do is either something that I accept, and if that's the case, then I praise it to reinforce it, or it's something that I do not accept and I have to coach them or parent them or teach them or insert whatever words you want. Um, but we have to get rid of the gray area, you know, and, and if we can all live our lives uh, in alignment with those philosophies, we'll see so much friction reduced and we'll, we'll see ourselves make so much more progress, not only with ourselves, but with the, the children that we're raising and the children that we're coaching. Right. So that's easy. I shouldn't say easy. But there's a, a level of uh, you're my dad and I'm the kid. If we, but here's the problem in our world. You're like I'm. I talk to mostly sales leaders, like sales managers and VPs of sales. Yeah. And my my comment to them is always, look, you reward the behavior you want repeated, and you punish the behavior you don't. But they are there's such a fear, especially with, well, at least pre-COVID, that they couldn't fill a seat if someone left because they were mad at their boss, right? Because unemployment was so low that they continued to let certain behaviors, which may undermine the rest of the team go because for whatever myriad of excuses. So I can't lose someone in that territory. Right. How do you coach someone on a leadership level to have a tough conversation that says, look, I know you sell or I know you perform, but I don't accept that because it hurts the rest. Of How do you help someone through that? Well, the, the most effective way is to make sure that that's, that's how the relationship starts. Like that mindset is made crystal clear during the recruiting process, uh, during the interview process, mm. during the initial hire process. Now, I know for someone listening right now that wants to retroactively fix that, that's been going on the other direction for five years, that's a much bigger challenge. But at some point, you need to be able to wipe the slate clean and you need to be able to have a conversation with them that would go something like this. Uh, first and foremost, uh, do you give me permission to coach you or, or use whatever terminology you feel comfortable with? I, I realize if it's a, a VP of sales and a sales professional, you might not want to use the word coach, but you use whatever terminology is best for you. Do you give me permission to coach you? Do you give me permission to do everything in my, with my experience and expertise to make you the best sales professional, whatever role is possible? And, and if they give you compliance and say, yes, absolutely, that's great. If for any reason they say, no, I don't give you permission to coach me, then they simply cannot be a part of your team. This, this is a non-negotiable. This isn't a nice to have. This is a requirement. Then the next question is, do you give me permission to hold you accountable to the standards that we've created here? Hopefully every organization has some standards, a, a code at which they live by in order for the organization to function at the highest level possible. So I need to be able to say, do you give me permission to hold you accountable? And what's important with that is, is making sure that everyone on the team knows that holding them accountable is something you're doing for them. It's not something you're doing to them. Uh, people tend to think accountability and discipline are bad things. That's a They're big not. distinction. Yeah, yeah, accountability and discipline are the, are the keys to freedom. They're the keys to success. They're the keys to high performance. And we should all want to surround ourselves with people that care enough about us to, to hold us accountable. 
So once again, if I was asking you those questions and you said, no, I don't give you permission to hold me accountable, then I'd say, well, you simply can't work here. Um, I appreciate the last five years. I'll gladly write you a great reference letter to go somewhere else. But I cannot have anyone on this team that is, that is not being um, open to being held accountable. And then once you have that, then it's a matter of constantly uh, talking about modeling and living out those standards and making sure that they are a part of everything that you do and that you get to a point from an accountability standpoint that you don't just have vertical accountability, which is you report to me so I tell you what to do, but you also have what's called horizontal accountability, which means everyone on the team holds everyone else accountable. So if, if one of our, our standards of excellence is we will be early for everything we do, uh, every company function, every meeting, every engagement, every call will always be early. And then I find out that you're a couple of minutes late. I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And it's not personal. It's not because I don't like you. It's because I care about you and I care about the organization and team so much that I'm not gonna let you erode it by, by undermining one of our standards. And when you can do it that way, and you do it through love, and you do it through compassion and empathy, then it's no longer this accountability and disciplines are a bad thing. Uh, you no longer feel like, well, Alan's just out to get me. No, I clearly violated one of the standards that I agreed to. He's supposed to, 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 to discipline me or hold me accountable or, or whatever word you want. And, and that's the type of relationship-based culture that everyone needs to create. Uh, and once again, uh, it's easier to start from scratch to create that culture than it is to retroactively implement that when you haven't been doing that for five or six years. It makes it much more difficult. Um, but I'm always a believer that you know tomorrow is a brand new day. We can keep going down this path or we can have a really open and honest face-to-face uh, -face talk, even if it's via Zoom, and explain that this is, we need to reset the parameters. We need to recalibrate and lay a new foundation, and here's how it's going to be moving forward. Anyone that wants to be a part of this, thank you so much. I would love to have you. Anyone that doesn't, I respect and understand that, but you simply cannot be here any longer. And when you can create that, then you're no longer at the whim. If, if a sales professional doesn't want to live up to that, you're willing to let them go because you're confident you can uh, attract someone to fill their place that will be a much better fit. And uh, all of these things fall under the umbrella of basic in principle, but not easy to do. Yeah, not a yeah. single thing that I just told you is actually easy to implement. Right. Well, shit, man. It goes back to par the parenting decisions are usually pretty clear. Now, whether they're easy to actually do, it's very difficult. Same thing in business. So I want to shift gears real quick because I'm staring at some pictures behind you, right? You got the unibrow, you got KD, LeBron, <laughs> uh, but you got Kobe behind you. And uh, I want to talk about how you met Kobe first. And then second, because you had – uh, some early interaction with him and and we're now at a point where he's he's been gone for a couple months now and, and we kind of just uh, experienced this really on a international level this mass mourning just some insights on why you think he had such impact but first tell me uh, a little bit about Kobe and, and your personal interaction with him Oh, sure. Well, I, I had a chance to first meet him in 2007. Uh, Nike Basketball hired me to work his first ever uh, Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. So I had an opportunity to, to be on the Nike staff that year and, and got a chance to speak with Kobe. But, but more importantly, I got to watch one of his really early morning workouts. I mean, 
talking super early, well before the crack of dawn. And, and I just remember being blown away watching that workout, um, that he was so focused on the basics and the fundamentals. I mean, he, he was the one that actually taught me the line, the best never get bored with the basics. Mm. I mean, that was, that was kind of his secret to success. Uh, he looked me right in the eye when I asked him, why are you the best player in the world? And he said, because I never get bored with the basics. And I watched that firsthand. You know, I, I watched him do offensive moves and footwork that I had routinely taught to middle school age players. Uh, now, of course, he did everything at an unparalleled level of intensity, and he did everything with razor sharp precision, but the actual drills he was doing were incredibly basic. And, and, and that really changed everything for me moving forward. Um, it was at that moment that I realized kind of what we were just talking about, that just because something is basic and premise doesn't mean that it's easy to do. You know, if it was easy, everyone else would be doing it. And, mm. and, in, and in line with everything we've been talking about, you know, we live in a world that keeps telling us it's okay to skip steps. That's telling us we should always be looking for a shortcut or a hack or a way to circumvent the process. And I believe that's always a mistake. The basics work. They always have and they always will. And, you know, when, when you talk about, uh, you mentioned, you know, reading a book, uh, you know, uh, from 25, 30 years ago, that's still true today. I mean, when you look at our profession of professional speakers, you know, the Jim Rohns and the Zig Ziglers and the Brian Tracy's, you know, those guys have been saying basically the same stuff you and I are saying, you know, <laughs> yeah. 50 years ago. And, and they weren't the first ones to come up with it either. Right. They all had someone that was saying it before them. And, and maybe those folks didn't have quite the name uh, that they were able to have because they kind of started this whole professional speaking uh, as a viable career. Um, but I have the humility to know that the stuff I'm sharing, these are principles that are much older than I am. Uh, now, I may say them differently. I may package them and bundle them in a different way. I may put my own unique spin on them based on my own life experience. Um, but, but this stuff is the same. Same thing with the game of basketball. You know, since the day the game of basketball was invented, it's predicated on shooting, passing, rebounding, defending, and handling the ball. Those are the five primary skill sets. Mm -hmm. That has not changed in 100 years, and it will not change in another 100 years. And we may uh, try to complicate things. We, we may try to, to always make things harder than they need to be. But the basics and the fundamentals uh, are there. And, and we have to make sure that we're constantly attuned to them and we're constantly sticking with them. And, and that was the most important message uh, that, that Kobe taught me. Um, I didn't know him well. You know, I, I ended up seeing him or working events a couple more times uh, over the next few years, but, but was certainly somebody uh, that I really had such a, a strong admiration and respect for, um, his commitment to his craft and his excellence. And then certainly as a father, you know, seeing his commitment to his daughters and what a wonderful father he was post-basketball uh, was just really neat to see. But um, yeah, and you are right. The, the, the morning that took place after his passing uh, far impacted people well outside of the game of basketball. Yeah, I'm, um, my, my family, uh, everyone but me is from Philadelphia and South Jersey. So I'm a big Sixers fan. You know, he went to Lower Marion High School. So Absolutely. he's kind of like a, a, a child of Philadelphia. And even better that he spoke Italian. So as an Italian guy, like he yes. was – you know, other than the fact that he played for the freaking Lakers, he was amazing, right? <laughs> I digress. But um, you know, you'd, I would listen to Philly radio and just the stories that, like, from the most basic interactions. And I think it's interesting that did did all you have to do is ask to go see a workout? Were you just like, hey, Kobe, can I come see you work out? 
Well, yeah, I mean, of course, you have to keep in mind that that was a pretty vetted group that, that right. he already understood that, you know, Nike had selected me as the performance coach for that camp. You mm -hmm. know, it was a camp of 100 players and probably 20 to 30 coaches and staff members. Uh, so I wasn't a random guy walking Got off it. the street. I wasn't a novice fan. You know, he saw me there working with the players and he saw that, you know, I was wearing the, the, the staff issued gear. Um, but yes, he was incredibly gracious and very open to that. And, and for that, I'll, I'll forever be thankful that's cool what a what a great experience um did you watch the michael jordan documentary oh absolutely yeah what else was there to do we weren't watching basketball were we no we <laughs> so, yeah so that was remarkable yeah it was fantastic um you I, I i've watched your tedx talk and i've heard i also watched um another podcast you did with on it right yeah. by the way i've just as the sidebar, I am a huge fan of on and I am a habitual user of their memory and focus nootropic, which I every day at this point. Um, so that was a great pod. If anyone wants to see a really cool podcast between two really cool guys, go check out his episode 70 uh, where you talk to Ken and it was just what a great podcast. So I, I'll throw that out there for them. Um, but you talk about a lot, a lot about presence, right? The, the TEDx talk is like, be where you feet, where your feet are. And in your book, you talk about presence. And the reason I relay that to the MJ documentary, somewhere in there, they said, Michael was always in the moment. Like he wasn't too far, other than unless he had like a, somewhat of his, you know, motivating vendettas against the player, right? That was the only thing he carried over. But when you watched him in the, in the locker room, he was smoking a cigar, having a beer kind of, but he was, he was like focused on the moment, never thought too far ahead or too far behind. Where does that come from? And, and where did you start to recognize the value of presence in, in that sense? Well, I started to really recognize it probably uh, a decade ago. Um, and, and you want to talk about, you know, as we talk about things of old now seem new. I mean, living in the present moment is like the new buzzword and the phrase now. But I mean, that's been around, you know, as long as human beings have been around. Mm -hmm. You know, now there's, you know, of the last 20 to 30 years, there's been, been so much more emphasis on meditation and on yoga and those sorts of practices. I mean, that stuff has been around again, as long as human beings have right. been around. So I was a little bit late to the party um, of understanding how important it was to be in the present moment. You know, that's certainly one. If I could have picked up on that uh, as a youngster or even as a, a middle school or high school athlete, I mean, it would have been an absolute game changer. And, um, you know, what's funny is being in the present moment, just being where your feet are, once again, is, is very basic in premise. Uh, but for me, I, I think it might be the hardest uh, skill set to develop, you know, because there are so many distractions for all of us every moment of every day. So learning how to stay focused and be in the moment uh, is vital, uh, not only to high performance and high achievement, but to happiness and fulfillment and contentment as well. And while it is important that we can look back and learn from the past, and it is important that we can prepare for the future, we don't wanna live in either one of those spaces. We wanna live in the present moment because it's the only thing we can actually have an effect on. Uh, one of my favorite acronyms is the acronym WIN. W-I-N, and that stands for what's important now. And, and that's something I constantly remind myself of. What is important right now? What is right in front of me that, that deserves 
my full attention and my best effort. Well, at present, it's obviously having a conversation with you and providing value for your listeners. So that's the only thing I'm focused on right now. You know, I have everything else in my office closed and turned off. You know, I don't have web browsers up. My phone is on silent. It's not even within reach. You know, I'm not folding laundry while I'm talking to you. I'm giving you my full undivided attention because you and your audience are absolutely what's most important to me right now. Now, the moment this call is over, I'll shift my focus to the next thing that deserves my attention. And whether that's another call or it's writing a blog or it's being with my children, whatever that is, I want to give it everything that I've got and give it my full attention. And anytime we try uh, to serve two masters and we try to multitask and, you know, we text and drive or we make a Facebook post while we're pretending to listening to our, listen to our children, but we end up serving neither. So I've worked really hard to try to just be where I am. And uh, some days I do a really good job of that. Other days, not so much. But the beauty of being in the present moment is when you find that you're not doing a great job, there's another moment coming right around the corner. So you can always refocus that lens. Cool. And yes, that is one of the things among many that made Michael Jordan so impressive was his ability to be in the moment, to not worry about the possession that just happened to not worry about whether they'll win or lose the game in the middle of the third quarter, but just to be in that possession, in that moment, fully alert and fully aware. And that is, again, really, really, really challenging to do. Do you have any personal uh, rituals or, or daily habits, whether it's morning or, or in the evening of post value? Is there anything that you personally do to say for anything that we've, we've kind of talked about? Well, I do have a very specific morning routine and a major pillar of that uh, is I use the Headspace guided meditation app. And I've got a pretty nice streak of consecutive mornings starting my day following that. Uh, and there's nothing magical about that app. Uh, I've just found that, that it gives me some consistency. Uh, in that 10 minutes, uh, it allows me um, to come from a place of mindfulness and awareness and to start my day in a grounded manner. Um, it allows me to improve my focus. And even that, you know, there are some mornings that I, I'm, I'm dialed in with, you know, razor sharp precision. And then there are other mornings where I'm sitting there like a squirrel and I have 75 different thoughts during that 10 minute period. Um, and with any of it, I'm never aiming for perfection. Perfection is never my goal. My goal is always progress. Can I get incrementally better at whatever it is that I'm trying to do? Uh, because pro uh, perfection can stifle us, you know? So as long as I'm, I'm trending in the right direction and my arrow and my ramp is going up, to me, that's much more important than where I am. The direction at which I'm going is far more important than where I am at this moment. And that's the same with my physical, mental, or emotional health and well-being. Um, but the, the, that, that app and doing a 10-minute meditation every morning has definitely helped. Now, what happens with a lot of people is they say, hey, Alan, you know, I tried that meditation last week and it really didn't do anything. And it's like, well, yeah, it takes time. You know, uh, at the time of this recording, this morning was my 1,075th consecutive day doing meditation. So you're talking well over three years and now it's starting to add up. You know, now the little bit that I do each day, I'm starting to reap the benefits of that. It's, it's kind of like building a brick wall. You know, if every morning you wake up and you add three or four perfectly placed bricks to that wall, within a couple of years, you're going to have a massive wall. And it's all because you added a few bricks every single day. So that's kind of how I look at that. You know, meditation is not something you can do once or twice. 
uh, and then say it worked or it didn't. Any more than doing a few burpees and a few jumping jacks is not gonna get you in great shape. Now, if you do a few burpees and a few jumping jacks every single day, every single week, every single month for years and years, then you'll start to see the cumulative effect. So from a present standpoint, uh, that has helped. And the other thing that's helped me is I have the awareness to know that, for example, if I have my phone on me, I'm going to be inclined to look at it and check it. Uh, I don't have the willpower not to. And, And that's neither here nor there, but at least I know that, which means when I need to give someone my full attention, uh, I put my phone away. So for example, right now, my phone is away. Uh, when I have my children and they're over for dinner, uh, I have my phone away. I'm not going to check it. Um, so I've had to put some systems and processes in place uh, that increase the chance of me being present at any given moment. So this is not about willpower. Uh, this is not about trying to white knuckle it so that you don't look at your phone. Just put it somewhere else if your goal is to give someone your full attention. And um, putting those systems in place is, has also been a huge help. And then really the last piece is, you know, uh, I do have this awareness now um, because I'm hypersensitive to it that I know when I'm not present. You know, I know that if in the middle of our conversation, I start thinking about what I'm going to eat for dinner, I, I recognize it. I acknowledge it. I don't beat myself up over it, but I quickly get back and focused. I quickly refocus on W-I-N, what's important now. And maybe I lost 10 seconds, but it doesn't mean I have to lose an 11th second or a 12th second. Let's go ahead and start, you know, start fresh right now. Wow, that is fantastic. My brother, we could talk for another two hours. You Easily. were just, it's flowing. Um, but for the sake of time, it, it makes sure that I don't, I don't take too much of your time because you've been so gracious. Uh, I'll, I'll ask one last question. Sure. And I did not, I did not prepare you for this question, right? So uh, this, is, this is the Wine and Wealth podcast. It's three o'clock, so I have not buckled to have a glass of wine with you. Normally, I'd be having a nice, but I've, I still have to function after this <laughs> and not mailed in. But what is your definition of wealth for Alan Stein Jr.? You know, I would say for the first portion of my life, like most people, I would hear the word wealth and automatically equate it to to finances and to money and to an accumulation of uh, bank account numbers and, and material objects. And I've conditioned myself to not think solely along those lines. Uh, I do think financial wealth um, is a part of maybe an overall pie, uh, but I also think of things like uh, emotional wealth and well-being. Uh, you know, for many people, spiritual wealth and well-being, physical, mental. So I, I try and take a, a holistic approach, and you know, I try to use the same mindset. You know, most people would say if you had this amount of money in a bank account that would mean you were wealthy. Okay, well, what does that mean in these other areas? Uh, What would emotional wealth look like? Well, for me, that means having really strong connected relationships with my children and family and friends. You know, what what does mental wealth look like? Well, it means constantly looking to improve by devouring books and podcasts and and watching documentaries and doing things to fill my bucket. Uh, What does physical wealth look like? Well, it means at 44, I don't have too many aches and pains and, and I can still do many of the activities that I did when I was younger, uh, maybe not at the same level, uh, but I can still do them. And I, I look good, I feel good, and I perform well to do my job, both as a speaker and as a parent. Um, so at this point, to a more succinct, 
a succinct answer would be, I look at wealth and well-being as being very synonymous and being able to, to interchange those words. Um, and that's my goal. You know, I want to have well-being in each of these different pillars of my life. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's the best way I could frame it. Amazing. All right. Tell the people where they can find you. Sure. Well, you can find uh, everything at allensteinjr.com. And I'm at Alan Stein Jr. Uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, all the major social channels. Uh, if anyone does have an interest in the book, they can go to raiseyourgamebook.com. Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon, or if you want to listen to it, you can pick it up on Audible or iTunes. Uh, but I try to be really easy to find, and I work equally hard to be very accessible. So if anyone was listening to this, uh, if you'd like to continue the conversation, um, just hit me up on social. Uh, would, love to, would love to wrap with anyone that's invested their time with us today. Cool. Uh, I can attest to the book. I devoured it. It was it was so cool. The first voice you hear is your forward of from Jay Billis, which is for the NBA fans in the room. If you were wondering how much clout Alan Stein Jr. has in the game, there it is for you. So, uh, my brother, thank you so much. I enjoy any parting words for anybody. No, you know, I, I think the last thing I'll share, because you can see, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, um, as a professional speaker that has not been on stage in four months, I feel like I'm a caged lion. Like mm -hmm. the fact that I get an audience, even though it's just a webcam at the moment, um, you know, we could easily talk for five more hours and I, I wouldn't even take a breath. Um, but the last thing I'll share is something that has really, really helped me in my life. You know, we talked earlier about simplicity and, and here's the approach that I take in all of the decisions that I make right now is I have this vision of who I want to be 20 years from now. You know, I'm 44 years old and I can picture who I want the 64 year old Alan to be. Well, I want him to be physically, mentally, and emotionally fit. I want him to have wonderful, deep connected relationships with his kids and his family and friends. I want him to be doing what he considers meaningful work in service of others. So that's who I want to be. And now to make my life as simple as possible, every decision I make, I simply ask myself, is that going to take me closer to being that guy or is it going to take me further away? And these are even little things like what I'm going to eat for lunch or who I follow on Instagram. I want as many things as I can to be in alignment with who it is that I want to become. I want to design my future self with intention and purpose. And I certainly know that time is not promised. There is nothing that even guarantees that I'll see the age of 64. But if I do, I have zero doubt that that is the man I'll become because those are the decisions I'm making now. And as I said earlier, uh, I'm not batting a thousand. I'm not perfect. I make a handful of decisions every week and every month that are not in perfect alignment with that. But I learn from them. I hold myself accountable for them. And I don't complain, make excuses, or blame anyone else. I just try to make a better decision the next time. And the way that I can check myself uh, is what I'll leave your audience with right now. Every night before you go to bed, ask yourself the following question. Say, I just traded 24 hours of my life for the progress that I made today. Am I happy with that trade? And if the answer is yes, then I hope you get a wonderful, restful night of sleep. Well, I got nothing else to say, my brother. That was awesome. Manifesting wealth while being wealthy. All right, my friend. I appreciate you. Folks, go check them out. Get the book, Raise Your Game. You know where to find them. And until next time, stay wealthy, happy selling. This has been Wine and Wealth. Peace. Peace.